0: You're listening to The Science of Storytelling, presented by Pressboard, a show about marketing, media, and the people making it happen. Your host is Jared Grimm. On today's Science of Storytelling episode, I'm chatting with Daniel Littlewood, executive producer of The Explainer Studio at Vox Media. This is a great episode. Daniel and I talk about how he introduced personal lubricants to Cambodia, bartering with red squirrels, and the importance of pronouncing someone's name correctly. I also recommend you check out the show notes on this one and watch a few of the videos that we're covering, especially the Cambodian personal lubricant one. It's hilarious. If you like this episode as much as I did, hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. Now, let's get to the show. Daniel, welcome
1: to the show. Thanks, Jared. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, so I I think you have a pretty interesting job as executive producer of the Explainer Studio Vox Media. I think it's interesting when someone's job is to explain things. So today, what I thought we would do is I'm going to get you to explain a bunch of things to me and my listeners. Is that cool with you?
1: Sounds pretty good. uh, I'm on the clock.
0: Yeah. And we'll get to your job and Vox and Explainer Studio. But the first thing I want you to explain to me is how you ended up in Cambodia shooting a commercial for personal lubricants.
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, I would like to note that we introduced the concept of personal lubricant uh, to the Cambodian market with this uh, commercial, which made it even harder. Because when you're making a commercial about something that is sexual in nature, but it's a relatively conservative audience. You got to make sure that you use metaphor and aren't too direct or else you'll get banned from the TV broadcasts. Uh, That's a long way of saying that we eventually got a comedian to hop around in a full-body condom suit saying, sometimes when I exercise a lot, I get really sweaty and I need to cool down with this cream. (laughs) It was pretty fun.
0: I'll put a link in the show notes to this because I've watched it. And sometimes when I'll see an international commercial like this, I'm not sure if I think it's funny because it looks so ridiculous. When you were making it, was it intended to be really humorous the way that I'm interpreting it? Or is there like a difference in cultures? Uh, Like when you're making that one and people can check it out in the show notes, was it intended to be as funny as I think it
1: is? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, we were trying to do something that would be memorable without being too literal just because of some you know, potential issues around a, you know, a more conservative audience. Um, but we ended up being as literal as possible with a, a condom jumping around. And again, an experienced comedian sort of playing the role. Um, I don't think too much got lost in translation because one of my friends who is actually in it, he was a, one of the art directors and we had a little shot of him doing a cutaway, uh, in a cutaway. He said that people would stop him on the street and be like, hey, hey, you're the guy from the, the that, that, lubricant, that lubricant commercial, mm-hmm. um, which was, uh, I guess, great to hear.
0: Right. That's why at least I always worry about, you know, those uh, actors and they they're in a commercial and it's like a herpes commercial or something. And and they're forever if that commercial, because sometimes those types of commercials will get played thousands of times, all of the time. Uh, being It's way worse than being recognized as a child star if you were in one of those kind of pharmaceutical <laughs> yeah. ads in some way.
1: Yeah, The uh, I think the uh, the Cialis actor and actresses I can kind of already picture in my head. Yeah.
0: And what were you doing in Cambodia?
1: Uh, I was working at a very small production company that I got to help found. Um, it was relatively soon after... Uh, Graduating from college and taking a chance to, you know, um, go see the world by teaching English, which I was not great at. But luckily, I met some really fascinating people who were starting uh, and wanted to do some video production that I had a a little bit of experience in. And it turned out that we, you know, met over beers at a bar and talked through some opportunities. And it started with saying, okay, uh, we have a bootleg copy of Final Cut 4 at that point, maybe, maybe even earlier, Um, and a a laptop that can barely run it. Uh, Let's see if we can see if we can make something.
0: It's interesting, because it sounds like you went there in Southeast Asia, like I went to Europe, Uh, people go, they backpack. I mean, I worked in a bar, right? I didn't really further my career or my knowledge base in any significant way. But it sounds like you went there and you had like a real job well a real company even where you were doing real work and was that in it sounds like you went there to teach English I mean it seems like you're pretty good at English so but maybe (laughs) teaching it teaching it is a little bit different uh and was it that you always loved you know video production is that what you wanted to be when you grew up or did you fall into it once you were in Cambodia
1: uh pretty much fell into it I was this is no, not the funny part, but I was really interested in the history of Cambodia and the the genocide that occurred there and the U.S. involvement. Um, that's you know high school model United Nations and things like that. So after sort of learning about you know some about documentary and sort of the basics of some production in undergrad, uh, this was the first chance to really try it out. When again some people at a bar were saying, "Hey, we think we could make an interesting video here." Uh, you know, be it about uh, condom lubrication, be it about uh, fundraisers for nonprofits, be it about, um, you know, uh, NGOs that operated there and needed a, a, a video to show at the, as, at the end of their report. We got the opportunity to start making that stuff. And what was sort of a one-off project became, you know, four or five years of a small production company. None of it particularly expected. It just all kind of kept coming and there were opportunities to, as you were saying, sort of learn stuff by doing it.
0: Yeah. And so you spent like five years in Cambodia. Was it always, were you tending to go for that long right from the start or was it because now you had something that earned some money, you were able to stay there for a longer period of time?
1: more of the latter and just that it was, it was just fascinating. You know, I, I really enjoyed uh, my time there. I met some incredible people, uh, tried to learn Cambodian and did a pretty bad job at that. but just a, every every day was a sort of a, a new and different adventure, which I guess happens to most people when you're you're in your 20s. So I don't think it was just the fact that it was Cambodia, but just a fascinating place and opportunities to do things and be at a you know in a, in a place where I didn't know how to edit, but I knew more about how to edit than anybody else in the company. So that made me the editor. Time to time to figure it out.
0: Right. I uh, I when I did work in a bar there i had never worked in a bar in europe before but i was the oldest i was 23 maybe everyone else was british and they were on their gap year which i think was where they were about 19 so because i was the oldest one i became manager of the bar automatically purely because i was maybe like taller or something there was really i had never worked in a bar before no experience but i had that one maybe the four year age gap they're like well you're the oldest so you'll be the manager doesn't take much sometimes to to become that be in that position. How so to, you how to go? <laughs> it, yeah, it's funny. So the first day he said the owner says, okay, because I was looking for a dishwashing job, job. I just wanted to ski. I was in the French Alps and I just wanted to ski and snowboard for the winter. So I was like, I gotta get a job if I'm gonna stay here. And I applied to be a dishwasher anywhere. I didn't care what it was. Give me room and board, give me a ski pass. And I'll do whatever you need me to do in this kitchen or in this bar. And I went in for the interview. And because I, it was so competitive to get dishwashing jobs, because it's just a bunch of backpackers, I did, like, fudge my resume a bit and said that I had done, like, shift leader work <laughs> at a local restaurant. I knew they weren't going to check my references. So this isn't, like, a great... Uh, Look, my resume is up to date now. (laughs) My LinkedIn is correct. And he said, he's like, you know what? Our manager just left. They just quit yesterday. We need a new manager. It looks like you're qualified. And at that point, I wasn't going to say, no, no, I don't know how to do this. So the first night that I was on shift, I took all the staff aside and I said, hey, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I've never done this before. If you can get me through this week. Then this will be the funnest winter you've ever had, I promise. And they were all like, "Okay, let's do this." And for that whole week, someone would order a drink from me if it wasn't if it wasn't just a pint of beer. And one of the staff would jump in front and say, "I'll grab this one, Mister Grim." They'd call me Mister Grim or Sir because it's British. And uh, they'd just jump in. They'd make the drink, and that was great. So I, I really looked like I was successful. The staff was all listening really well. We we're working hard, but after that week. I basically had no control over them anymore because they had that, You know, I had promised them so they would take a smoke break when they wanted a smoke break. It was really difficult to manage after that, but because it wasn't a career job for me, it was just to get on the mountain, uh, it was pretty fun. But yeah, it was, it was an interesting experience to fall into, definitely.
1: Yeah, and it sounds like also an opportunity to learn about managing, which when you run a company as you do now, it probably comes in handy.
0: That's a good point. That's a good point. Maybe I was doing some of my career while I was there. Uh, so then you you leave Cambodia. You come back to the U.S., come back to New York, I believe?
1: Yeah, uh, through I eventually I eventually made it to uh, New York um, to work for StoryCorps, the oral history project. Uh, got a job there and, and uh, packed up and, and moved here in 2007.
0: And then how did you get into the media world?
1: StoryCorps arguably is part of the media world in that you get to listen to people's uh, personal stories, their lives, uh, and file it away in both the Library of Congress and occasionally on um, NPR, on National Public Radio, uh, with some edited stories that aired, that would air there and some animations that um, were made around that. Um, but to get an actual media job uh, sort of required me getting hit by lightning, basically. I walked out of a... Uh, a reading. A Patty Smith was giving a reading at Barnes Noble uh, in Midtown, I think, somewhere around there. Uh, and I happened to walk out and run into a friend on the street who was a journalist uh, and said, "Oh, you're around. What's up? How's it going? Oh, by the way, you're looking for some some work. You know, I was freelancing and working at StoryCorps on and off. And we're hiring at HuffPost. Uh, the Huffington Post had just started a uh, live TV network, uh, HuffPost Live." And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. And in literally under two weeks, I was at a desk at the Huffington Post uh, getting health insurance for the first time in my life from a job.
0: <laughs> and was that so would that role have been more uh, on the editorial side if you were to you know, split it into commercial side and, and editorial side?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, it was at HuffPost where I sort of first uh, uh, dabbled in uh, branded content. Uh, But I came on board as a, you know, as a producer, as an editor, um, and was working with a lot of live interviews, you know, helping sort of write questions, uh, working in the control room, doing some of the interstitial, editing some of the interstitials afterwards. Uh, It was, it had a startup vibe because it was a new, you know, network. Uh, So people did a a lot of everything. And after a little while there, um, you know, I'm really enjoying the editorial work and really getting a chance to... uh, Have that sort of daily newsroom vibe of you know breaking something break. There's a piece of breaking news, and suddenly there's an entire buzz in the newsroom, and it it feels alive and different. And people are rushing to their laptops or to their phones, trying to call sources in wherever whatever excitement or tragedy just happened. Uh, There was also this sort of more stable, quieter. Also, interesting vibe with the uh, the branded content team, the, the sponsored content team, where they were also putting out some really interesting stories, where they had sort of longer runways on a lot of their stuff, um, and needed a lot of the same skill sets of can you produce interviews, can you um, you know keep things on deadline and on budget. Uh, so that sort of gave me an opportunity to straddle those two worlds for for a while.
0: I I always find that people when they get into branded content, they often will come from either, you know, journalism, editorial side, or they come from the advertising world. You, in a way, cross both of them, even if it was, you know, doing commercials in Cambodia, but then going over to HuffPost, a little bit more editorial side, there is, you know, these two things that are happening uh, in your background. And then you end up, so did you end up in branded content at Huffington Post, or was that just an, you were exposed to it there? When did you actually fully get into it? Was Vox the first time that you were fully in the branded content side?
1: No, Huff, HuffPost was definitely. Uh, I sort of. I did. I was at HuffPost for about four years, all at HuffPost Live. And after about two years, I was. I went from the sort of the editorial ha- half of the room over to the branded half of the room. Uh, my day to day didn't switch a ton. I was still, you know, building out uh, videos and interviews and directing edits and making sure that you know, any, any hosts knew exactly what to to ask and talk about. And then it just happened to also be presented by or sponsored by, um, and we had some talking points that we needed to, to work in, um, which I found both, you know, an interesting puzzle to, it was an interesting puzzle to, to work with, to how do you make something that people want to watch while still working with some of these brand requests. Uh, so it was a good training ground.
0: And how is the, I've always thought that the one of the powerful things about branded content is that there's budget behind it. So you can do a lot of this stuff, but all of a sudden you've got advertising budgets, which I believe are qu- quite different than sometimes the editorial budget to do a story. Did you notice that, that there was more budget, more time? Uh, how did that affect you know the ability to produce something?
1: Oh, 100%. Yeah, i I I'm sure I am not alone in having it be nice, you know, that it wasn't a 24-hour turnaround for a a story. It was, you know, I could get a couple of days or even a week to turn something around uh, to make sure that it, you know, got approvals on the client side that it, you know, we, we, that we kept on our uh, revenue team that we were happy with the product. Um, Yes, that's extra steps. And yes, that can dilute things at times. And yes, it can feel slow, but it also lets you, spend that time working on something, crafting it, making sure that it feels right instead of just now.
0: Mm-hmm. And once you finish up at HuffPost, where do you go from there? How does that, how does that next phase happen?
1: Yeah. Uh, went from HuffPost, um, after about four years over to vocative which, uh, was a, uh, my first experience working for a uh, billionaire founder rather than a millionaire founder. Uh, It seems like media has sort of broken down into those two categories sometimes. Uh, And Vocative was sort of a news and uh, somewhat tech and data focused site, which had some great people there. Um, I don't wanna dwell too much on it. Uh, It doesn't really exist uh, in the form it did now, in the form, it doesn't really exist now in the form it did then um, because it barely exists at all now, but we got to make some great stuff and it was an awesome launch pad to come into Vox. Hmm.
0: And then you come into Vox. This is, what, what, three years ago?
1: Yeah, just coming up on three years in about a week from now.
0: Yeah, so I've always found Vox an interesting story itself. I mean, it it's also interesting that you were at HuffPost in the early days of HuffPost. It was funded. It was going after a new area, digital only, which wasn't common when HuffPost came around. It was That was breaking ground. Uh, and now you have this new... Breed of publishers that you know maybe were inspired a bit by HuffPost as well with BuzzFeed, which is also pretty. So there's a very close connection there, and Vox and and even if Vice had been around for a while, that kind of feeling of this new form of modern media, uh, and Vox was def- is definitely one of the big players in there. But I don't know if everyone. Understands the structure of Vox. So there's the there's Vox.com, which is the news site that people might be familiar with. But maybe you can explain to us what Vox Media is.
1: Yeah, I mean, I Vox Media. I certainly was learning about it by joining it and coming uh, coming into it um, because it's big and it keeps growing, uh, both in terms of you know absolute numbers and in terms of sort of the the focus and the networks that it has. Um, you know, everything from Vox.com, as you pointed out, you know, founded by Ezra Klein and, and more folks that really gave the explain the news was their tagline. Uh, very much a news site. Uh, Eater Eater is a part of it now. Uh, the incredible food journalism from all around the country. Uh, Curbed, a design uh, blog that, you know, was built up into a, an entire vertical. Uh, Polygon, which is, for my money, as someone who doesn't play a ton of video games, the best... It's video game journalism that I read, even though I don't play the games. Uh, the Verge is a, a tech site, and just recently there was an acquisition of uh, New York Media, New York, excuse me, New York Magazine. So that includes things like Intelligencer, uh, Grub Street, uh, The Strategist, you know, The Cut. There's, I'm sure I'm missing plenty of them because there's such a big tent within Vox Media of these really unique editorial networks. Um, you know, Recode is fantastic uh, tech journalism, and Vulture is awesome entertainment journalism, and somehow it's all under this one very broad tent of Vox Media.
0: Yeah, well, that so uh, me being you know I own a tech company, so Recode to me, like Peter Kafka and Kara Swisher, I mean these are these are the people to me. I'll, I'll talk to someone and they'll say they'll talk about a journalist, and I've never heard of this journalist, but it's just you know it's the greatest food journalist of all time. And I don't know them. And same way that I'll speak about Peter like to me, they, they are, they've always been these personalities that I think it was what all things digital back in the, back in the day that they started out. So what is it between, because people's experience with Vox media will be often through the masthead that they are closest to, but there's not that many similar there's not that much similarity between Polygon which is like video gaming and Eater which is, you know, restaurants and food culture. What is it that ties everything together under Vox Media? What's the line?
1: Honestly, I think that that's a great question that I don't know that I'm the best person to answer. You know, I do think people have these real valid and emotional connections to each of the each of the networks kind of those entry points and are usually pleasantly surprised when they stumble on the something else you know a team blog for SB Nation I, I read about the Portland Trailblazers I don't read that and think that's a Vox Media property I read that and think that's great on the ground journalism about something I care about I do get that same vibe when I read Eater that it's great on the ground journalism about something I care about I just don't know if I would say to myself aha that's the, th- the line they hire good journalists to do good journalism. Ideally, yeah. that, ideally that would just be table stakes, right? <laughs> I mean,
0: well, there probably is some sort of you know these are pretty passionate communities, and even if you did a Venn diagram of all of these communities, there might be you know not a full overlap between them, but maybe that maybe that's actually what the line between them is is they're just these really powerful verticals with these. R- passionate communities. I've seen this in in a few other, I think um, Brian Morrissey, who used to be a Digiday, kind of wrote about this this idea the other week, which is that there's really two choices. You're either a house of brands or you're a branded house. Like the New York Times would be a branded house where the New York Times is the company, uh, is what you're going to interact with. And they might have crosswords and recipes and news and everything underneath that. And then you have more this house of brands, which is uh, I, I think closer to what Vox is which is these individual brands with their own feeling their own uh, community their own voice uh, and what connects them is probably ownership structure but also maybe um, maybe some ad technology I know Vox is, is pretty big in the ad tech space I'm familiar with that space really well and then it moves over to some of the other areas of it so explainer studio so let's talk about let's talk about your role uh, and your area within the Vox Media business. So I'm going to get you to explain the explainer studio.
1: Sure. And I think that that's certainly a great segue because when looking between different Vox Media properties, there is this unified audience that does care about, you know, a little bit of a deeper dive of wanting some context behind things, of feeling like, you know, I'm not just out at this site for whatever today's news is. I'm looking for a little more about, okay what's what's rising to the top of the the heap from the daily churn and how can you put that into context for me so it's not so I don't have to know exactly what was written yesterday to, to get what today's news is um, and that core of that or has been explainers that's something that you know I think the folks at, at vox.com deserve a ton of credit for for really staking a staking a claim on we do explainers and we do them really well uh, it's certainly not. It's certainly something that a lot of places do, and probably had have done before, and continue, will continue to do after. Um, but finding ways to do them right, and not just having them be sort of a running list of things that are important. That's that's an ex, That's that's a that's a that could be called an explainer, but it doesn't really make the person who reads, watches, listens to this walk away thinking, okay. I get this, and now I can explain it to somebody else. There's a there's a core nugget here. There's a a core question that I now feel, if somebody was to ask me about, or if I was to bring it up to somebody, I kind of I kind of got this. I, you know, I, um, again, things may change. There may be a piece of breaking news tomorrow that will that doesn't necessarily factor into that, but I'll be better able to understand it because I have this background context from an explainer that I. Watched, read, heard on somewhere on Vox Media.
0: That's really interesting. The uh, so I've always been a big fan of uh, Vox's explainers, and what you're saying here makes sense to me now because what I like to be able to do is learn about something and then communicate it to someone else in a way that. Uh, so I've got two kids. I may want to explain it to a ten-year-old, right? Or I might be at a, an event with friends that aren't in the same space as that, and it does help. So I, there's a few just to provide some context, there's a few that uh, recently that I've seen. Uh, There's one on how soap kills coronavirus, right? And I was like trying to explain why I was trying to think through why you have to spend 20 minutes washing your hands. And I didn't really have a great way to do it. And there's a lot of technical ways that you could explain it. Um, But I watched the explainer video from Vox. And it just breaks down the idea of like, how it's got this fat barrier around it and soap can connect to both the fat and the water and it just pulls it apart. And that's what breaks up these things. And the reason it takes 20 minutes, they have this great um, way that they show how if you just use water and then if you just use soap for five minutes, how it doesn't work, but it takes some time for this process to happen. That's why it takes 20 minutes. And like, there's a lot of information in that, that these Vox explainer videos will will be able to get across in five minutes, which means that I should then be able to do it in two minutes. <laughs> the other ones I saw the Electoral College one, so I'm Canadian. Mm-hmm. So I always need an explanation of the Electoral College. Like every four years, I need a new explanation on the Electoral College because it's so unfamiliar to me uh, in, our, in our system. And then I saw one on why diets fail. You do start to go down a bit of a rabbit hole with these because you forget that you're, you know, learning about something. They were just really well crafted. And I actually stumble across some of the branded ones without knowing it, which I guess is probably the point, uh, is that it does translate from, you know, what would be seen as editorial or just informational. And then you can have a brand supporting it. So when did brands start getting interested in this format?
1: I can I can certainly speak to that at, at Vox I mean it was something where a really smart team at Vox said we've got a format that we've helped define develop, and works across this really wide variety of topics just even just the examples you just cited are all pretty wildly diverse and those that's on the editorial side. well, you know brands say that they have stories brands say that they have you know new uh, new products they're is something to explain there. There's something to to dive into, to give context, to talk about why it's important, uh, why this why this new feature, why this underlying principle behind something uh, matters to an audience beyond somebody who just wants to you know read a review of the new product. So the explainer studio came about um, through you know I guess that would have been summer 2017 of saying let's let's try this out. Uh, I can't claim credit for being there right at the very beginning. I came on a little later uh, once they sort of established it a bit, but it's really successful. I, mean, I just I I am certainly in the catbird seat to say this, but like we've worked with dozens up you know dozens and dozens of brands. We made over a hundred of these videos in the last uh, coming up on three years. Every brand, every everybody who comes through the door, re- we really do have an opportunity to say to them. We can tell your story in a different way. Uh, it's not going to be necessarily a 30 second commercial as you might be used to and it's not going to be a you know 45 minute um, documentary unless you really uh really want it to be in which case let's keep talking but there's a way to find a core question about your your product your theme your your brand and expand that into something that people will want to watch well people will say ideally you know it's a it's a huge win when something comes up as a presented by advertiser and the YouTube comment is, Oh, I didn't even really notice this was, this was branded, you know, just as you were saying earlier, there are great stories here and we need to just take a, a different lens of looking at a product or a brand to find what that story can be.
0: I always like a little bit of context with things. So what would be, could you give me an example of one of your favorites?
1: Sure. Um, this is one for, uh, the, the, I'm going to use one from the Cutter Foundation, which you know uh, the ability to work with international clients is, is fantastic. Um, and again, Vox has just a really wide reach even internationally, so that, that, is, that makes it a great option. Um, but they wanted to talk about kind of the future of education, like it's a really big topic. There's a million ways you could approach that. But if you're going to make a short video about the future of education, there's a very good chance someone will walk away being like, uh, "Okay, that was a lot of information that I don't know how it all connected, or how it connects to a personal story, or, or to me. How do I how do I have a, take a nugget out of that?" So we did what we generally do. Uh, this you know this uh, Cutter Foundation wanted to do something about education, so we drilled in. We got a little more narrow, and we tried to find something more more human in it. Um, and what we landed on in this particular case. Was saying, you know, in class when the teacher is reading the names up front, and every class is going to a teacher may well stumble over a name on the first day of school. And it's a, it's it's unfamiliar to them. It uh, it has a unique spelling. It's a different, a, a different cultural background. Okay, we kind of can all identify with that, but it matters. You know, the more we we dug into the topic. Of having this question of of, of what's in a name, of, of what does it mean when a position somebody in a position of authority doesn't get your name right? Uh, we heard these really powerful stories from people, and we found, you know, scientific uh, social social research into this, saying that this does have an impact. This can change how students receive an education. Uh, this can change, you know, later in life outcomes. So we wanted to, to tell that story and Luckily, the client said, "Yeah, that's a that's a great way for us to talk about not just the future of education, but the you know the importance of a multicultural education, the importance of how teachers uh, are a part of the 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 culture within a classroom, rather than just sort of focusing only on what what are student outcomes." Um, and we got to tell really personal stories, answering a simple, identifiable human question of. What does it mean to have somebody say your name wrong?
0: It's it's so interesting because you're right. If, if the topic was, here's what the future of education looks like, it's really tough for someone to then pass that along to somebody else. But I watched this one, the one that you're talking about. I'll tell you why I watched it. Uh, one was, you know, I knew I'd be talking to you and I wanted to understand some of the branded stuff because I'd seen other ones. Um, and actually, I'll segue into it because I'm not yep. sure how to pronounce the name of the other brand that I'm going to bring <laughs> up. Um, but my business partner, uh, who's Iranian, I, our CTO, so his name is Tiam, T-I-A-M. And I've been with him dozens of times where people say Tim, because TM like it's very nuanced as far as like when I hear it even. Right. Uh, and he just says, yeah, he goes, yeah. And I'm like, does that bug you? You know did that? And he said, I'm used to it. Right. And so you can tell that this has happened. If it's happened dozens of times with me being when I'm around, it must have happened thousands of times. And eventually you just kind of give up and there must be a, a loss of power in giving up your name. Right. Which is core. Like there's nothing more. Um, owned by you than your name. Like, look at the time you take to decide on a child's name and then that child has that name. There's this ownership around it. I found it super, super interesting, but it also uh, is really easy for me to pass along that concept to somebody else. I mentioned it to my wife. I'm like, this is really interesting uh, because I learned also about like microaggressions when I watched that video, which is kind of this like unintentional, sometimes racism that can happen by just, you know, fluffing over the fact that how someone's name is said is very important. Uh, so I found that really interesting. I, when I watched it, though, I didn't, I didn't think of it as sponsored content. And I'm in this space; like, I know sponsored content, I know what to look for. It felt exactly like the other explainer videos that that I saw. And the other example I'm going to bring up because I love the example you gave. One that I came across on my own one time was: um, I've always been kind of interested in like cryptocurrency. Uh, and, you know, digital currency. And there's one from, and so I'm going to ask you to make sure I pronounce this right, but is it, is it Zelly uh,
1: They pronounce it Zell, but yeah. The, uh, some okay. red, some red squirrel pelts.
0: Yeah. Okay. So this is exactly what it was. So we don't have it in Canada, which is why I probably everyone probably knows how to pronounce it in the U.S. because they've heard it so many times, but that's a good example. I thought it was zelly I was like almost trying to add, <laughs> add additional <laughs> lettering to it. Uh, and that's what I took away from it was they used to trade squirrel red squirrel pelts but that like little nugget of information kind of explains the whole concept of you know what we trade right now in cash is the same as what they did with squirrels which is the same thing as cryptocurrency could be like to me it all makes sense these are just symbols of value uh, because we don't barter anymore we don't give a bale of hay for your cow right so um I really, lo- I really do love this concept of these explainer. I'm wondering, are it, it feels like because it's not a 30 second ad and because it's not, it doesn't fit every other format, you know, it's not a 900 word article all the time. Is it harder to explain, explain to a brand that this is a different format than they're used to and they're going to have to have possibly um, more, provide more liberty to the team, to the, your team? To be able to craft this whole story because it won't be something where it's like can you quickly mention the brand like three times and you just reuse this blog post that we have it's going to be like this new piece of content that maybe they're not familiar what's it like working with brands on these explainers
1: yeah you definitely hit on hit the nail on the head on a lot of that it's for some clients you know it really is this sort of education process where we talk about why this works what when we say seamless integration we mean things like uh three-minute video that talks about how the history of currency has evolved and now that there are cashless transfers like Zelle Well, guess what history? Hey brand. This is some pretty great integration. All of history progressed up to you. I mean, that's That hits the nail on the head Uh, Other times, you know, we really have people coming to us saying I saw Netflix explained, you know Vox has a show on Netflix all about explainers they happen to be 20 plus minutes and they go really in depth on, you know, uh, broad categories. And we then have to sort of say, glad you love that. If you're into the idea of providing context, uh, looking at a, a deep question and making a, you know, a really visual um, animated uh, approach to a video to explain that concept, we've got that product. It's just going to be closer to three or four minutes than 20, but uh, we'll, we'll make that work too. I th- I, yeah, I think I think one of the things that really works well with explainers and makes for great partnerships with with clients is having that discussion around some of the goals. Is having that discussion around when we what we mean by integration. Um, we're not going to do a product review. You know, it's there. There are great places out there to do that. We're not going to do a thirty second piece where a manicured hand holds the uh, the product and we say and we show the tagline. What we're going to do is we're going to work with you in a really collaborative way to say, what do you what what are, what is interesting and new and unique and underpins the value of your product? That's something we can sink our teeth into and find unique ways into. That's things that we'll ask a core question about, a hinge question about, to uh, to start to give us an avenue for explaining what this is, um, rather than sort of just taking it and saying, okay. Uh, tell me why our new brand of bottled water is better than other ones, we're going to say, well, let's look at what exactly goes into the scientific composition of bottled water, not just today, but 100 years ago when people really, you know, when there are, you'll you'll go to places like Ashland, Oregon and there will be um, sulfur water coming up through the, uh, through like a town square watering fountains because people had very different perceptions of what fresh or clean or healthy water was in different places at different times throughout history. That's something we can compress into a piece to talk about what you're doing today.
0: Yeah, I love it. I think the format is is super interesting. And it is more than a format because one of the powerful things about content marketing compared to advertising for me. I mean, I come from an advertising background. The one thing I didn't like about advertising was the idea that it had to interrupt something else that was more interesting. Like that was its feature was, hey, you're watching something super interesting. Uh, what if we get to steal 30 seconds from you and you got to watch this because this is how this, this thing that you love, that's the only way that thing can exist is if you bear with me for 30 seconds. Whereas this is the opposite saying, this will be the interesting. Uh, piece, and you'll pay attention to this, and there is no ad that's going to interrupt it. it. It is the ad, it is the show, it's everything all at once. Uh, that must be attractive from a, from a, you're a creative person, you're a, you know, producer, uh, it must be fun to to play in that world. I'm curious where you think, this has not been the easiest year for media company, for anybody, right? But for media companies, and then being in the, you know, production part or creative part, of media, which is where, where you sit, what was this year like for even as basic as like, I imagine you used to shoot stuff on site all the time with people in rooms. <laughs> what did this year look like from just a pure like production perspective?
1: In rooms, you say? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> rooms with other people in them. I, I, I have vague memories. Um, yeah, I, just, just to, to, to piggyback a little bit on your previous point, it's about earning that attention. You know, it really is about saying. You know, the, your point about interrupting and saying, "Take a look at this" before we get you back to the good stuff is is real. But all of us at this point have to earn the attention and the eyeballs. There are two, there are so many options of where your where your attention can go, uh, and one of the ways that we often earn people's attention is with fantastic high budget uh, shoots. And there are great ways to do that. And there's there's talent that can be. Um, you know, really photogenic and identifiable. And there's human, really human interactions that you can have and capture on film. And then we all stayed at home for, you know, nine months and counting. Mm-hmm. So on the production side, to kind of keep earning that attention, a lot of what we've done is really say, what makes these principles that we want to express or these points that we want to express uh, that are often kind of abstract, visual, and our answer has been animation and design. Mm. Uh, we, you know, I think that's one of the things that makes that really differentiates a Vox explainer is saying, you know, with with some voiceover, with some you know some some clever, tight, punchy voiceover, with some illustrations that really and animations that really work to get to the core of what something is and how to express it, uh, and just some visual beauty. You can do a lot. Uh, we. At the Explainer Studio, yeah, you know, we were kind of already doing a lot of that stuff. We would already be doing phone or remote interviews with somebody because we don't need a talking head on camera for thirty seconds with a seamless behind them, perfectly lit. We need them dropping a little bit of knowledge that we can then bring to life with visuals, uh, with these you know animations that our team just goes wild on with these collage approaches, uh, with. The use of stock footage you know at, at some level i have a ton of respect for dps i've been a very bad one myself at times it's really hard to get a great shot of i don't know a, a refrigerator door opening but if that's not really the core of your story i'm just going to grab one from the stock library and make sure that it fits into the larger story of you know what it is inside a refrigerator that really matters
0: so you learn these new ways you adapt to these new ways There's a vaccine coming out. We all watched the movie Contagion. We're at like, (laughs) I think there's like 10 minutes left in the movie or so, maybe 15. So it's just, it's the craziness of vaccines for a while. And then hopefully or possibly we return back to, you know, what 2019 looked like in some ways. Um, What do you think sticks? What parts have you learned this year that even if you were back in crowded rooms doing things, you could do everything the way you could do a year ago which things do you take with you post vaccine
1: I th- I think it's not just production techniques a lot of which I think we'd sort of already had in place of being willing to you know use zoom in the best possible ways of mailing um, ring lights to somebody um, so that they can they can show up a little better uh, I, I think it's really remembering like this was a weird period that needed that people needed needed ways to understand what the hell was going on um, at core. Like that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to explain what the hell is going on on a much smaller scale than, you know, a worldwide pandemic. But at, if I'm looking to a piece of media to try to make sense of things, I want it to be willing to sort of meet me on the, on the plane of, you may not be an expert, but you're smart. Here's what you need to know. Um, yeah, I I don't know that that exactly answers your question, but it it makes me optimistic that some of the lessons that we'll learn from this, which is we can be nimble, we can adapt our workflows quickly, we can listen to clients when they say, everything just changed for us, how can you still be make us relevant? Um, is still going to be there, even if the you know if whatever the new normal is sort of solidifies.
0: Well, I agree with you. The one thing that I've learned that's off of that you know you're bringing up here, which is like the, there's some really complex topics that have happened in the last year. Like I didn't know anything about how viruses spread or how you destroy them or how uh, an entire world has to work together to be able to solve a problem. And what I noticed, though, was that people were taking a lot of information from each other because there was it was so difficult to be able to translate some of this stuff. And you had a rise of, you know, there was conspiracy theories that would come out of nowhere, but they would rise. And you have to like believe that people were telling other people something based on something that they had learned. And it's this game of telephone. And how well can that message be translated through people? And that's what I love about this explainer format is that there's like a nugget in there that you can you can tell somebody else and they can pass that on to somebody else and they can pass that on to somebody else without too much getting lost because of the way they're constructed but it doesn't dumb it down to a point where there isn't valid information in there so i love this this format i i keep calling it a format it's probably just a different way to to be able to pass a message from person to person uh yeah, I think that's a really good, really good point. And yeah, the part around the production—like maybe things will stay, maybe things won't—that's an always evolving part. Uh, I've I've loved having you on the show. I think that what you're working on, both on the branded content side, is really interesting. I also find that your background is is really intriguing. So I always ask for a book recommendation, but I'm going to make. I'm going to ask you to have a really specific book recommendation. So I believe you took anthropology, right? That was your, right? And then you went to Cambodia and kind of studied, you know, people. And I feel like you're continuing to study people uh, in a different format now in branded content. So for us that didn't take anthropology, but are really interested in it, what's an accessible book that That maybe touches on that subject, doesn't have to be about anthropology, but the touches on like how humans work or how humans have existed?
1: Uh, A book that made me really think differently about people and how we act with each other. And in fact, how we sort of look at media too, um, is by this guy, Eric Michaels, and it's called Bad Aboriginal Art. And good luck finding it at The Barnes and Noble, you know, good luck finding it even online. I had I had to hunt my copy down uh, because I lost my undergrad copy. Uh, But it talks about how we make assumptions about, you know, authorial intent. Uh, Bad Aboriginal Art, the title is about the idea that in the 1980s uh, there was a really big market for traditional authentic Aboriginal art in New York and worldwide. Uh, The dot paintings. uh, They're beautiful. There's a really rich and fascinating history behind them. Uh, Tens of thousands of years of of tradition. So how do you price that stuff? How do you call it good if you're not willing to call any of it bad? If it, you know, where, where is the actual human hand that is creating these if the only va- if the only way that it's valued and assessed is that it's thought of as authentic, well, what about the person who did it? Maybe they were really good at one aspect, of color, but they were really bad at something else they were trying to do. They, were, they the, the, their figures weren't represented the way they wanted them to because they screwed up on the hands or something. Um, and as a you know anthropological text, it was a rec- it was kind of a deep dive into the art market. It was a dive into what it is that people are looking for when they consume art in certain audiences, and into what are people, what are the cultural forces that drive people to create work that doesn't necessarily start out for the market, uh, that doesn't necessarily even have that in mind, and then suddenly explodes with tens and tens and hundreds of millions of dollars raining down on it.
0: I love that, and I here's if if we can't find the book. Maybe you can put in a word with the explainer studio or with Vox, and maybe we could get a five to 20 minute version as an explainer video. Well,
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I, it. I, I, I think the, I do want to shout out his one other uh, piece, which was um, watching Rambo, uh, which was talking about watching Rambo. He was doing his field work with Australian Aboriginals, watching Rambo and people saying, well, what's Rambo's mother up to during the movie of just a, uh, he's why are we only looking at Rambo what's his family go what's going on with his family and thinking yeah I would literally never ask that question but it's really illuminating in how we perceive media and what we what we assume should come out of the content that we watch and read and listen to um and yeah this guy managed to get both of those ideas that have stuck with me for 20 years now into one slim book so kudos to him
0: yeah Well, thank you so much for being on the show and thank you for explaining to us uh, not only about personal, the personal lubricant market in Cambodia, but but about Vox and your role. Uh, I really loved having you on the show.
1: Thanks so much, Jared. This was really fun.
0: Thank you so much for tuning into the Science of Storytelling. Don't forget to leave us a comment. We love hearing from you. We have a ton more episodes coming up this season with some absolutely amazing guests. So make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single one. See you next time.